Let me ask you a question. Are you scared of snakes? Yes, okay, good. I'm glad I'm not alone in this. I am terrified of snakes. There is a deep-seated hatred I have in my heart towards snakes. A couple years ago, we had a timber rattler that slithered its way right into our backyard. And as soon as it did, our kids came running inside and said, Dad, there is a snake in our backyard. Okay? I had two emotions. Fear and domination, okay? Now, part of me, I was like, I want to go hide under a bed. And part of me says, let's go do battle. And so what I did was, I thought, you know what? Let's, let's go exercise dominion over this thing. And so I marched into the garage. I picked out my weapon of choice, a garden hoe. I marched outside and I raked that snake out under, from underneath the rose bush. I then raised my weapon and lowered this piece of steel right on top of its head. The snake was dead. My ancient foe was out of the way. The kids celebrated. There was great rejoicing. And one of my kids said, Dad, you have such big muscles. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. I, I do have big muscles. <laughs> it was a significant moment. Well, you see, every day, you and I have a decision to make. When an, a dangerous, deadly animal comes under your domain, when a stack of dishes are piling up in the sink, when it's time to have a hard conversation with an employee, when it's time to discipline your child, will you shrink back or will you exercise dominion over the task that God has entrusted to you? Well, see, every day you have to decide, am I going to step up and lead, organize? Am I going to dominate or am I going to shrink back? Well, as an image bearer, God has made you to rule like him. That's the point Moses is making in Genesis chapter 1. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. We're in the middle of a sermon series entitled Imago Dei, which is Latin for the image of God. Last week, we saw in part one that we were made to reflect him. God made you on purpose and with a purpose, and that is to know and follow Jesus Christ. God designed you, he made you as an image bearer to reflect what he is like. In fact, when you were in your mother's womb, God is the one who formed you, he is the one who made you, and God does not make mistakes. Your parents may not have planned you, but God sure did, and he doesn't make junk. You are fearfully and wonderfully made by Almighty God. In fact, all people everywhere are image bearers, and they reflect what God is like. Well, as this morning, as we look at part two, we're going to see that in the text, we were made to rule like him. Look with me at Genesis chapter one, beginning with verse 26. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. 
He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. See, up to this point throughout Genesis chapter one, God has created the heavens and the earth. He has created the sky, the dry land, the seas, the plants, the cosmos, the birds and the animals. In Genesis chapter one, we see creation as the theater of God's glory. Then the time comes for the climax. This is the pinnacle moment, the crowning achievement of creation, the making of man and woman in the image of God. What's interesting here is that in comparison to all other components of creation, it's image bearers who ultimately reflect what God is like. And so if image bearing is our identity, what is our purpose? We were made to do what? Well, notice these two truths here in the text. The first is this. As image bearers, we were made to represent the creator. To represent the creator. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will Rule. This command for image bearing to rule is a call to a position of authority. It's a position of headship. It's a position of leadership over a particular domain. In Genesis 1, God gives responsibility and authority to rule to Adam and those who would be image bearers. Question is, what is our domain? Look at verse 26 the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. You see, all fish, birds, animals, plants, and land are under our care. The creator, Genesis 1, has put people as his representatives over his creation, and the entire earth is under man's domain of leadership. The point is this. Image bearers are vice regents, whom God has charged with overseeing and stewarding creation. God has deputized mankind to represent him in exercising dominion over creation. We are to rule over creation, not the other way around, regardless of what other agendas may say. Now, we're not to abuse this world. We are not to destroy it for our own personal greedy gain, but we manage it, we steward it, we subdue it for God's glory. We see Adam fulfilling this mandate in Genesis 2, 15. It says, the Lord God took the man and placed him in the garden of Eden to work it, to watch over it. You see, as God's representative, Adam is overseeing, he is stewarding, he is working the garden, serving as a vice regent, exercising dominion over the land. We'll see later in chapter two, verses 19 and 20, where God brings the animals to Adam for him to name. And as he names each animal, he is image bearing. He is fulfilling the position of authority. He is fulfilling his position of headship by naming something. Parents, you named your children because there is an authority that has been entrusted to you. Well, for all image bearers, we are entrusted with the responsibility and the authority of representing the creator. In Psalm 115, verse 16, it says, The heavens are the Lord's, but the earth he has given to the human race. For every governor, their domain is 
their state. For every mayor, their domain is their city. Well, for you, it's your home. It's your workplace. It's your relationships. It's the resources and possessions that God has entrusted to you. Now, we are all to exercise dominion over areas of influence that God has placed over us and our areas of influence. But y'all, it's hard work. You see, when God pronounced coming judgment, Noah rolled up his sleeves and he exercised dominion over gopher wood and made an ark. When Ruth needed to provide for her and for Naomi, she threw a sack over her shoulder and she went and gleaned in the fields. When Nehemiah heard the condition of Jerusalem's walls, he prayed with tears in his eyes and then mobilized God's people to go and rebuild the wall. You see, when trials come, God's people get on their knees and then roll up their sleeves. This is what we do as those who are representing the creator in our image bearing, it requires a complete and utter dependence upon him and the fortitude to do the work that he has put in front of us to do for his glory. Now, exercising dominion over creation, it's not easy. It's hard work. Why? Why is it so hard for us to go out and to labor? Well, scriptures tell us in Genesis chapter three, move forward with me two pages or two chapters to Genesis three, specifically looking at verse 17. Satan tempted Eve to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. She ate, then he gave some to her husband who was with her, and then he ate, and sin entered into the world. And because of their disobedience, just like with all sin, there were consequences. Look at the consequences for Adam's sin. Look at chapter three, verse 17. God said to the man, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it, watch this, by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground since you were taken from it for you are dust and you will return to dust. You see, the ground is cursed because of Adam's sin. Now we all experience painful labor in our lives and it's because of one man's disobedience. God tells Adam, the ground is going to work against you now. Instead of working for you, instead of your work being easy, it's now going to be hard. You're going to have to sweat. You're going to have to struggle. And then you're going to return to the dust and you will die. See, the consequence of Genesis 3 is why landscaping is so hard. The curse of Genesis 3 is why building your business is hard. It's why raising children is hard. It's why leading a church is hard. It's why farming is hard. It's why doing things worthwhile is hard. And unless Jesus returns, all of us are going to physically die because of Genesis chapter 3. Our federal head, the one who is supposed to represent us, fell in the garden. Adam failed the test, and so did we. 
Because when Adam sinned, we sinned with him in the garden. And every time you choose to disobey the Lord, you are doing exactly what Adam did in Genesis chapter three. But there's good news. You see, God had a plan and he sent the second Adam. You see, the first Adam came from the dust of the earth. The second Adam came from heaven. The first Adam sinned. The second Adam was sinless. The first Adam was made in the image of God. The second Adam is the image of God. The first Adam was tempted in the garden and failed. The second Adam was tempted in the garden of Gethsemane and was faithful. The first Adam, his failure brought destruction to the earth. The second Adam's victory will one day usher in a new heavens and a new earth. The first Adam required a sacrifice to cover his shame. The second Adam was the sacrifice to cover our shame with his righteousness. The first Adam's disobedience brought death. The second Adam's perfect obedience brought life. The first Adam's consequence was thorns from the ground. The second Adam bore the thorns of consequence as a crown. The first Adam disobeyed God. The second Adam was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The first Adam died and returned to the earth. The second Adam died and rose from the earth. You see, Jesus is the second Adam who reversed the curse of the first Adam by bearing the curse of sin at the cross. All of us are under the curse of Adam, the first one. But praise God, he sent the second Adam who reverses the curse of the first. And through repentance and faith in the second Adam, through faith in Jesus Christ, you and I are restored back into a right relationship with God. You are adopted as sons and daughters. You have an inheritance that is coming. You have been redeemed both now and forever. You have eternal life and you belong to him. This is the gospel. God sends his son who gladly goes to the cross and pays the punishment towards our sin that we deserved. Jesus lived the life that we couldn't live and he gladly takes the nails for you at the cross. The Bible says that he was put in the tomb but he does not stay there. On the third day, he arose. He comes back to life and he is alive today both now and forever. And so those who trust in the second Adam you will find eternal life. And it's yours for the taking when you turn from your sin and you trust in Jesus by faith. You see, Jesus Christ is our representative before God. And we who are in Christ, we now represent him. We see in Genesis 1 that God brings light and life and order and this is what we see throughout creation. Well, as Christ's ambassadors, we are recovering and pursuing God's original design. And so we labor to bring light and life and order to our homes, to our jobs, to our community, and to our world. We are, as Paul says in Ephesians 5.1, we are to be imitators of God as dearly loved children. We imitate Jesus who modeled for us perfectly how we are to exercise dominion. We were made to represent the creator. But I want you to see secondly here in the text that we were made to rule 
over creation, to rule over creation. Look at verse 26. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. You see, ruling is not only a position of representation, but it's also an action that we take. God reiterates the divine mandate again in verse 28. The text says, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky and every creature that crawls on the earth. So not only are Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, have babies, have lots of babies, have them fill the earth, lots of image bearers, but also you are to rule over creation. These image bearers are to subdue, they are to rule, they are to exercise dominion over all things. But you see, creation ultimately belongs to the Lord. He rules, he reigns over all things, and yet entrusts us with the task of ruling. And yet, here's the challenge, y'all. Creation has yet to have been redeemed. This is why there are tornadoes and hurricanes and droughts and famine and floods. And every day there is animal warfare, it's because every day creation is groaning. Every day creation is saying, Adam, where are you? The representative and the head is dead. He disobeyed in the garden. Paul addresses this in Romans 8 about creation. He says, for the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subject, subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay and to the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. And not only that, but we ourselves who have the spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. You see, creation, just like believers, we are groaning. We are longing for final redemption. We are looking forward to that long-awaited day in which Christ returns and all of creation will be made new and we might be set free from the bondage of sin. And so here we are being patient. We are waiting and anticipating the one who is Lord over creation. And we will one day be with him who will return for us and make all things new. But until that day, he has entrusted us to rule the world that he has called us to have dominion over. King David addresses this in Psalm 8 when he writes, what is a human being that you remember him? A son of man, that you look after him. You made him a little less than God and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all the sheep and oxen, as well as the animals in the wild, the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea that pass through the currents of the seas. You see, this psalm of creation points to the image bearing of man in which God has put before us the responsibility of exercising dominion and ruling over creation. 
And as we wait for final redemption, we exercise dominion. We labor in this world as image bearers who reflect what God is like. And yet Psalm 8 is pointing us to someone greater. There is someone in whom God is mindful of him. He is the son of man that God cares for. In Matthew chapter 8, Jesus goes out on a boat with his disciples into the Sea of Galilee. And while they are out there on the sea, Jesus with his 12 disciples, some of whom are professional fishermen, a storm comes upon them. Jesus is fast asleep in the boat. And as the storm begins to toss and to turn, the disciples begin to panic and they wake up Jesus and say, wake up, do you not care that we are about to die? And Jesus wakes up and he says, oh, you of little faith. And then he speaks. And when he speaks, the wind and the seas go calm. And the disciples ask, who is this man that even the wind and the seas obey him? Well, he is not any man. He is the God-man. He is, Hebrews 1, 3, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is the one who has ultimate dominion over creation. He is the one in whom God has put all things under his feet. And there is coming a day in which he will redeem our bodies and this fallen creation will be redeemed. There's coming a day in which there is no more sin, no more suffering, no more tsunamis, no more death. So what do we do as we wait? Until that great day, we rule over creation. We have been commissioned by almighty God to labor and to work as rulers over his earth. We do this by putting bridles in a horse's mouth and we are directing where it will go. That's exercising dominion. When we train an eagle to fly around a football stadium, we're exercising dominion. When we train a dolphin to jump out of water, we are exercising dominion. When we teach our dog to sit, we are exercising dominion. When you cut your grass and you tell it you will grow this high and no further, you are exercising dominion. You are lording, you are ruling over the dominion that God has entrusted to you. And the task is hard. It's difficult. You see, even your body is working against you. That's why we have injuries and sickness and fatigue. Your heart is gonna work against you. You're gonna see that big pile of laundry and be like, I don't feel like tackling that. Well, not only that, parents, your children are working against you. You may have to leave that grocery cart full of groceries and take them outside to correct them. There's a sense in which there is difficulty, there is striving, there is work. And it's hard. Even creation, we've already seen this. It's working against you. Man, it feels good to cut that grass and to pull those weeds. But don't look now. Tomorrow's coming. They're going to come right back up after you. It's a 
diligent, consistent fighting against those things that God is against. You're exercising dominion and leadership and oversight over the task that is under your care. But this is what we do as image bearers. When you step up to lead and direct and take initiative and you labor for the good of your neighbor, God gets the glory. So when you work hard, you glorify God by caring for your patients, organizing paperwork, writing computer code, drawing out plans, engineering solutions, counseling people, teaching classes, training children, arresting bad guys, selling good products, and decorating with beauty. You see, when you step up to lead, direct, labor, take initiative, you're doing what God did in Genesis chapter one. You're reflecting what he is like. You see, part of image bearing is exercising dominion over creation and the world around you. You're showing what God is like through your serving, your planning, your administrating, your leading and striving for excellence. You see, This is why laziness makes no sense to me. Don't you want to build something? Don't you want to work hard for the glory of God? I've talked to four business owners in the last couple of months, and all of them have told me, I can't find good work. Because people don't want to do anything. They don't want to work hard. But see, this is not what God has called us to, y'all. God has called us to work hard for the glory of God. You want to give God your best in every area of your life. You see, being passive, lukewarm, average, doing the least amount of work possible, just getting by, that's the antithesis of image bearing. We work hard for the glory of God. Laziness robs God of glory. And so if you struggle with laziness, when it shows up in your heart, you kill it. And you look to Jesus for the grace to walk in the victory that he has accomplished for you to work hard for his glory. There are times in which laziness takes root in the hearts of children. And I've told my kids frequently, God puts you in the wrong family if you want to be lazy. We, God made you to work hard. You can't change the world playing video games all day. We work hard for the glory of God. We're going to build something. We're going to labor. We're going to work in the opposite of what our flesh tells us to do of being lazy and selfish. Now, hear me now. What I'm not advocating for in this sermon is for you to pull up the bootstraps on your salvation. Your good work, your hard labor does not save you. It's the good hard work of Jesus for you is what saves you. It's trusting in his work for you at the cross. But simultaneously, as you are trusting in Jesus for salvation, as you're banking your eternity on his work for you, on your behalf, his faithfulness and his hard work is what motivates and compels you to go work hard for the glory of God, which is our impact point. This is where we go as believers. Whatever God has called you to do, work hard for the glory of God. You give God your best with whatever the task he has called you to do, whether it's laundry or dishes or discipline. Maybe it's building a company. It's serving. It's changing diapers. Whatever it is, you do it for his glory. You do it with excellence. And when you do so, it's worship. It's a way in which you image bear and you rule over the tasks that God has called you to do, which means kids, 
Part of your domain is your room. And so you now, when you clean and organize and you straighten your image bearing, you're ruling over what God has entrusted to you. And if you're faithful with small things, he will give you bigger things. But it comes down to being faithful with the tasks that he has entrusted to you. So you work hard in the classroom. You labor over your academics. Why? Because it glorifies God. It's a way that you image bear by laboring over the dominion that God has entrusted for you to do. Parents, God has entrusted these children for you to shepherd and to love and to train and to lead them. You cast vision for where they are to go and you love them and lead them and teach them in the ways that they should go. This is leadership. This is image bearing. We are ruling over and pointing them to Jesus. Employees, it means that you work hard for the glory of God. You don't waste company time playing games. You don't waste company money. You don't steal or move money around. You're faithful because God is watching, but you work for his glory, not for your own. Your company who has their name at the top of your check, ultimately you don't work for them. You work for the Lord. And so everything you do is for his glory and honor, and it is worship. And this is what you and I get to do until Jesus calls us home. We labor for the glory of King Jesus. You see, the ancient serpent slithered its way into God's garden. And this ancient serpent sought to bring sin and destruction, and death to this world. But God had a plan. God raked him out from his lying and conniving ways. And God raised up his weapon. And he lowered it down on that serpent's head at Golgotha. The cross is where the head of the ancient serpent was crushed. It is at the cross that Jesus defeated the greatest enemy and he is dead. Death, sin, hell, and Satan himself have lost because of the cross and the empty tomb. And so now, as followers of Jesus, as those who have trusted in him, we are banking our lives upon him, we march forth and we go work hard for the glory of God. We labor and we serve and we train and we teach so that we reflect what he is like. We rule because Jesus came and ruled perfectly and shows us the way that we go. So we fix our eyes on Jesus. We walk in the way that he walked and we labor for the glory of King Jesus. Jesus.